Welcome to the LGBTQ podcast episode four. In this episode, we are going to be talking about things that excite us in tech. On the call, we have Sarah Withy. Would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, sure. My name is Sarah and I'm a software developer in the Midwest and I work at a bank that's regional to the area. I like awesome things in tech. Len, would you like to go next? Sure. I'm Len Smith. I'm IGNU all over the internets. I'm a software developer here in Seattle, mostly Ruby and JavaScript, although I'm very interested in Elixir and Elm. That definitely gives us something to talk about. Emma, would you like to go next? Sure. Hi, I'm Emma Humphreys in San Jose, California. I work for the Mozilla Corporation as their bug master, where I'm working on improvements to processes so that we can respond to bugs quicker and not have to roll out point releases of Firefox. Ben, would you like to go next? Uh, sure. My name is Ben Klebe. I am a mostly hobbyist student developer, but I also work for a small tech company that works on teaching programming and other STEM concepts to children uh, in the greater Boston area. That's awesome. Uh, and finally, me, uh, I'm Martin Fecky. I'm a, a software development for ThoughtWorks in Perth, Australia. So uh, on this episode, we're going to talk about things that excite us in tech. Who is excited about something in tech? Well, there's a couple of things that I'm uh, excited about. This is Emma Humphreys again. Um, first is Internet of Things. And I'm going to temper my enthusiasm about Internet of Things uh, with some concern. And we can talk about that. Uh, the other thing I'm excited about is data science. And again, this is a thing that I'm very excited about, but I also want to temper my excitement with concern. So tell us about your concerns. Well, why don't we talk about Internet of Things first? Um, recently, I was at Fry's, and those of you who are familiar with Fry's is the giant supermarket of electronics, uh, has an entire aisle now of maker things. And there was just a box that you could buy that says, learn Arduino basics. And so I picked it up, and sure enough, there was a single board Arduino, and some LEDs and potentiometers and resistors and a breadboard. And I started playing around with it and was actually enjoying uh, writing code. You know, it's a very C-like language that you use to program the Arduino. Uh, you basically download the, you download it from, from your development environment and flash the ROM or flash the, uh, flash the Arduino program and you can run it. And, you know, I was entertaining myself one afternoon doing lots of things with blinking lights and sequential blinking lights. That part is interesting because Arduino and things like Raspberry Pi represent what I think are interesting utility tools that we could be using for building things. You know, things that we would normally think about going off and buying off the shelf consumer appliance like, like an Apple TV or uh, a Roku that we could actually, you know, say, well, actually, no, you can actually just build it with a $20 Raspberry Pi and connect it to your TV and use it as your media center. And that's interesting. The thing that gets inter the, the thing where it gets really questionable and a little bit worrisome is when we talk about consumer level Internet of Things. So we now have light bulbs that have internet addresses and connect to your Wi-Fi, things like the Nest that and and the Drop Cam, uh, which are now all of these devices. And we've had a history of having to connected devices before, like security cameras and the like, but nothing as consumer friendly has these. And it brings up a couple, you know, the, the thing that brings up concern is that as technologists, we can go through and set up our house for Internet of Things and set it up in a secure and privacy pr uh, protecting manner. 
um, the person who goes to Best Buy or on Amazon and orders a, a you know orders a device is this is a device that's talking up to the cloud. It's talking to providers. We don't know what things are being sent along with it. Uh, I don't want to come across as being anti-cloud and anti-sharing information. There's very valuable things you can do with that. But again, there's so much absence of knowledge. You know, that's the right word. Just basically, you don't even know what you're sharing is the issue. And I think we need to have some, I think we need to have more discussions around that. The second is around who's going to be the aggregators of this data. So you already see, you know, I think you're looking at, you know, the major telecoms and the major cable providers are very interested in being the brokers of this data, because obviously if your house is got a Comcast cable modem, then Comcast would like to be the broker for all the data from all your house, from, you know, from all the connected devices in your house. And that also brings up questions, you know, such as, well, is Comcast, operating in your best interest or they're operating essentially in shareholder interest. So again, there's lots of governance issues around this, uh, around the, around this problem with internet of things. That, that question of, uh, are they operating in your best interests or their own best interests seems like a fairly, um, cotton dry answer from my perspective that as, as corporations, they act in their shareholders interests and not the, not the users. Right. And, and I think that's going to be going, you know, going forward. It also depends on where you are. Uh, we can talk about like uh, feelings about privacy. I think in, in the United States where I'm at, people are much more resigned. You tell people, well, Facebook does X, Y, and Z, or this website, you know, your popular website that you go for your kitten photos, photos, you know, does all of, you know, records all this information about you and what you're doing. And as Americans, we tend to shrug our shoulders and go, well, yeah, that's just how it works. And if you go to other places, if you go towards you know, Germany uh, and, and Central and Western Europe, I think there's a lot more objection to saying, no, this is not cool. So this is another, you know, again, this is, this is a political pol- uh, policy and cultural problem. It's not a technology problem. The, pro- the technology problems are very solvable. <laughs> it, it's, the, it's the other pieces that are, that are difficult. Does anybody else want to weigh in on this? I guess sort of, sort of, uh, what Emma, what you mentioned about uh, sort of the the increased enca- encapsulation of these devices um, and sort of how they're largely becoming, they're largely going to be black boxes and you don't know what they're doing on the inside. You don't know what kind of data they're collecting. You don't know what they're sending to the cloud, everything like that. Uh, and I think it's sort of part of a sort of a broader, uh, broader movement towards um, more encapsulation around computers and that kind of thing especially with the sort of the Raspberry Pi and the Arduino. Specifically, more, most recently, I had an experience with uh, a 3D printer that was designed for use by consumers instead of um, hobbyists. And I'd been kind of used to these sort of RepRap style, very open uh, printers uh, where you can basically change everything you want to and you know exactly what it's doing all the time. And this thing, you basically give it a file and it prints it and it chooses like all of the settings for it and it doesn't tell you anything about what it's doing ever and you can't like obviously you can't use your own cartridges within whatever. Yeah, you basically can't control anything uh, for it. It's all set in software, and uh, they try very hard to keep it that way. And I think sort of symbolic of a larger movement towards encapsulating things that were originally sort of birthed out of the the hobbyist realm. I guess you might call it. So Emma, what I mean, you mentioned Internet of Things. Like, what kind of things do you envision Internet of Things allowing you to do that you you can't do today? Well, a lot of it is actually coming up with some interesting ways 
of managing ma- managing our home. We have cats at home. I would, you know, I would like to, I would like to do things around being able to understand, you know, to be able to watch the cats and, and peek in on them. Um, simple things such as just things that are bit, that are location based. We're already very good at geofencing, and certainly, you know, your iPhone or your Android phone will do stuff in terms of geofencing. When I get home, remind me to do this thing, or when I arrive at the office, remind me to do this thing, or if I'm in proximity of the grocery store, remind me to stop in the grocery store and get a pint of milk. Um, the things that would be interesting would be to say, okay, you know, either my partner or I are at home. Okay. So that case, then it's okay to bring up certain types of wireless interfaces and bring up certain network interfaces faces so that, you know, that we don't have to worry about, bring, you know, you know, locking down our Wi-Fi when we're not home home, we can just simply say, well, the Wi-Fi stays off until one of us is present. Uh, I'm also interested in Arduino for how it could be, you know, used in clothing. And th- those are a couple of the, th- those are, those are a couple of the, of design things that I'm interested in around it. And also it's just, to me, it's, it's a new area. I've not really, I've n- in my entire career, I've never played with hardware until now. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting and exciting things to do. Um, in that space, and it's something that I've been dabbling with as well. Uh, I bought an Arduino, and um, you know, the thing that annoys me the most is that um, we we lose our um, remote controls for air conditioners and TVs and stuff. And um, you know, I have this idea that it would be really nice that if I was on the way home, I could uh, ask my home to turn the AC on before I get back. Um, so that it's nice and cool. Uh, it turns out that those problems are when you are trying to code with with a C-like language at the hardware level and you haven't done that before, there's an awful lot of infrastructure that you need to build to make that work. So that's been quite interesting and challenging for me. So having been on a school robotics team, I know a lot about hardware and have dabbled with Arduinos and various other hardware things like that. And I think we're getting to a point where the tinkering and the hacker spaces and all this are becoming popular enough that pretty much any sensor or accessory you can find out there, whether you go to a store or buy it online, pretty much has a library with it. And it's almost easy enough. You can just go download this library and you can start tinkering with, you know, more and more advanced sensors and other doodads really easily. So while there's still a little bit of a learning curve, like, well, if you haven't messed with motors before, how do you do that? I think it's getting to a point where it's easy enough that almost anybody can pick these things up pretty quickly. Len, do you want to um, tell us a little bit about um, the stuff that is exciting you at the moment? Sure. Uh, things I think that are most exciting to me are also kind of the things that are most irritating to me. <laughs> So I don't know how many of y'all do front end type stuff. Um, And there's been a lot of controversy lately over JavaScript fatigue. So I've been looking at like the React stack and uh, isomorphic tools, and it's all very exciting, but it's also all very painful in that you set up something and it's basically obsolete like three weeks later. You might want to explain what isomorphic tools are. Uh, Sure. So there's a problem when you write like a very um, interactive web application in that you have routes that respond to the client side. So if you are looking at a list of products and go to product two, 
uh, a client side single page app will take you there and, and not actually make a round trip to the server. Uh, the problem with that uh, happening all on the client side is that it's not very good for SEO. It's not very good for clients that don't respond to JavaScript. Uh, so there are frameworks that allow you to have exactly the same response, whether or not it's entirely server-side or client-side. Okay, so that's things like Meteor. Uh, yeah, there's Meteor. Or even if you're just doing uh, Node and React, you can also actually uh, bring the, those tools server-side to and uh, render your React components uh, on the server. Uh, and even that, that happens also in Rails or Elixir uh, or uh, many other languages too. Yeah, um, this is something that the um, Ember community has been working on quite a bit as well. Uh, and they have this feature called Fastboot, uh, which uh, deals with that isomorphic stuff um, as well. Uh, and also um, will uh, render the page on the server, send it to the client, and then when all of the JavaScript and everything is ready and loaded, we'll take over from there and continue as if nothing happened, which is kind of cool. Um, so what, what, um, how's that going for you, Lynn? It's going well. Like I actually have been using Redux, uh, and Redux is, um, one of the, uh, implementations of, uh, a flux type architecture for React. Um, so basically, uh, your whole application's data lives in one single big, like JSON object, which I was very skeptical about when I heard uh, and you do have to jump through a lot of hoops to make that happen. But once you go through all those hoops, uh, it's actually really interesting because there's so much introspection you can do and there's so many tools. So if you need to change your application state, uh, basically what happens is you emit an action and then a reducer uh, takes that data from that action and changes your application state. And there are tools that basically can give you a time traveling debugger. So any change to state uh, basically shows up in your console and you can actually kind of travel through time. So there's no mystery about what caused your state to change. Uh, so that's actually really, really useful. Uh, although, again, like I said before, the big pain points in this realm are to me how quickly basically the, the favorite tools change and the pain you have to do to basically keep on top of it. Yeah, we've been having uh, a lot of um, debate about um, JavaScript front-end uh, technologies at work recently, uh, and and looking at React and Redux, and and we're also big users of um, Ember now, which feels like it's a much more um, complete ecosystem and has been stable for a lot longer than React now. A long time in the JavaScript world, you know, being greater than three weeks, of course. But I, I'm really enjoying the build tooling around that. And it was one of the things that um, really frustrated me every time I try to um, dip my toes into React a bit more is that I have to build a build system to just make an application. And that feels like um, quite a frustrating process to me. And there's a bunch of projects to, to solve this right now. Uh, the one I've used most recently is Universal Redux. Uh, but again, as my big complaint with the React community is, is that there's always like 10 implementations of everything. And you have to wait a few months to find out which one lives. Uh, but yeah, if you build that build system from scratch, you might spend 
a week or more easily uh, getting everything set up that you want to get set up. Uh, but universal Redux is nice. It gives you Redux, React, ES6, uh, auto automatic code reloading. So you make a change and you know your browser is actually updated. You don't need to refresh. All, all your state stays the same. Uh, linting, I mean, every everything you basically could imagine you'd want. Uh, and the other thing that actually makes me very excited about this ecosystem too is React Native and the ability to reuse a lot of, of your infrastructure. Um, so you can't use like your UI controls like that kind of those components need to like basically be separate for Android and iOS. Uh, but you can use all of your reducers, all of your actions, basically all of your your business logic, uh, and even your routes, and then just have you know different view components uh, for the two uh, native apps. So that actually seems very exciting to me that you can reuse a lot of your application and have a web app, an Android app, and an iOS app. Yeah, that's super sweet. Uh, it's one of the things that keeps me looking at React. And I wish there was something similar um, for Ember. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about at the moment then? Um, no, most of all my free time is uh, in React and, and uh, <laughs> dog daycare duties. <laughs> nice. So, Sarah. I think one of the things that's been fascinating me lately is machine learning type things. So not only have we gotten to a point where... You know, like computers are fairly decent at recognizing speech. We finally got to that point. But now, like, you can, I saw this video online and I'll probably have to track it down again. But um, this guy just put a laptop in a backpack and just took a webcam and started walking around and was just recording everything the computer thought it saw. And it was eerily accurate most of the time. Like, you'd walk down the street, you know, and a car would drive by and it would just say, uh, you know, a red Ford just drove by or, you know, to a man and a woman in front of a flower bed would be talking. And not only was it identifying an object, it was identifying multiple objects and often a verb attached to it. Like it knew that people were talking to each other, not just standing there. And it fascinates me that we finally have come to a point that even just one simple computer that I could carry around with me can have the power to identify just things it sees and not not after like several minutes of computation like instantly and it fascinates me because i think we can do like really cool things like what if it's in a you know surgery room and it can take a look at you know a particular body part and say i think that's a you know some sort of disease that needs to i don't know just uh, I think there's a lot of cool, fascinating things we can do with it. And I think it's still so new enough that we're still kind of like, eh, let's use it for advertising, which is not a cool idea I think of when I think of exciting technologies. But I would love to just see how this could actually like just change the world and not just make Google more money somehow. So do you think it would change the world uh, for the better or for the worse? I think with, like most technologies that we've seen, you know, it can be used for good. It can be used for worse. Um, you know, computers used to be so slow that, uh, you know, a megabyte of memory costs several hundred dollars. And 
you know, people are like, why would we use computers everywhere? That's just silly. And now, you know, we have them small enough, we can carry them in our hand. And, you know, it's good to have a computer and a smartphone with me everywhere I go. But sometimes, you know, it's bad in that I constantly look at it all the time. And it's harder to pay attention to even your friends when they're constantly on their phones, too. And um, stuff like that. But it can come in handy, too. Because if there's an emergency going on, I instantly have contact with emergency people or, you know, other things like that. Like there's good uses and bad uses for all technology. And I think, you know, there's going to be some companies that pick up machine learning and identifying things and probably use it for bad. But I think, it, you know, if the right people think on it, I think they can use it to benefit society better. So who are the right people? Uh, That's a good question. I think it's hard to just tell who the right person would be. And I mean, that's kind of like saying that for anything. Like, how do you know somebody's just a good person? You could probably get into very deep philosophy classes with that. But I think anything to benefit the greater good of society would be a good use for this. As opposed to just some company like, oh, hey, I can make hundreds of millions of dollars off doing some weird, crazy thing. And it doesn't really benefit people on a whole, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I personally find all this stuff really interesting, but I, I also find it really terrifying. And I think that, um, you know, my observation would be that, that um, we can't really... Um, trust big organizations and, and governments to use any of this stuff in the best interests of the majority. And I, I was having a conversation with somebody recently and they were just talking about, you know, having with governments having access to people's phones and they could track terrorists and other people doing really awful crimes and whatnot. I mean, that that's definitely a good thing. But at the same time, you know, how much we've kind of gotten to a point where privacy is really quite scarce. I mean, if you go to the grocery store and you swipe your little shopper card, you know, they're tracking you and all your identity to the groceries you buy. And, you know, on some sense, that's just kind of silly. Like, Oh, why do they need to know what kind of cookies I buy today? But at the same time, it's like, we don't see where the conglomeration of all this data is going. And it is kind of scary to think what happens if, you know, the wrong person working in a government office gets this information. And I think one good example is the police cars that have license plate reading cameras on them. They can just drive around town and just see all the license plates of the cars that they pass. And you can find, you know, some criminals there. But there have been reports that they pulled people over at gunpoint because they thought there were warrants out for their arrest in it was just a misread license plate. Like some innocent guy gets pulled over at gunpoint and he doesn't have the foggiest idea what's going on, but the police sure do. And, you know, not only does he get treated awfully for something he hasn't done, but, you know, do they, does the police get, what what happens to them for pulling over the wrong person for no fault of their own because the cameras detected license plate wrong. And I, you know, mistakes are going to happen because computers aren't at the point of perfection yet. Yeah. And we, we've had people in this government, you know, in the U S government say we kill people based on metadata. So, you know, what happens if you, if you buy the wrong brand of cookies, you're a communist. Yeah. So yeah, 
I mean, th this gets into, and this is probably beyond of what, what this is, is you sort of ask the questions of why do we have to invest all this money in anti-terror anyhow? You know, what, you know, what, what are we doing that everybody wants to murder us? Um, yeah. So well, well, everybody doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, uh, yeah, that, that's a, that, that's a thing. Yeah. Um, Ben, you've, um, shared a link with us in the chat there. Um, did you want to, um, talk about that? Well, it was just, well, it was just, uh, it's, it's a link to an article on Boing Boing that's referencing a study about, um, sort of how, uh, computers can seem, uh, racist often or sometimes because of the algorithms they use to process, uh, big data. And it just, uh, sort of the discussion about, uh, license plate readers reminded me of reading this. So I just thought it might be interesting if anyone had any thoughts on that. Yeah. That kind of stuff is definitely the, um, I guess the dark side of big data. Um, that, you know, uh, once, once this stuff gets mined and, you know, we can hope that people will do good things with it, but, you know, uh, history has shown us that that's not always the case. Um, and, you know, some of the earliest uses for, uh, computing machines was the horrors that happened, uh, in the Holocaust in, in Nazi Germany. Um, and those algorithms were designed to, you know, identify people, you know, of particular cultural, ethnic, social backgrounds and do terrible things to them. You know, and that was on machines that were very, very limited in their sophistication compared to the um, machines and the data sets that we have now. So, you know, how that stuff can be used over time is, is more and more scary, uh, I think. Martin, do you think there's interesting uses and safe uses of machine data in medicine? Because I know that you're, you come from a background in medicine. You've actually done data-driven uh, work in medicine before in terms of things like you know, surgery scheduling and the like. Yeah, um, there definitely are, but they are extremely um, controversial and unpopular pieces of technology that get worked on. Uh, and, and an example of this is like how you bridge the gap between um, what is known, uh, and by known I mean uh, supported by uh, high quality evidence. So what is known to work for particular types of diseases and what treatments are actually used on a daily basis by various doctors. Uh, and one of the biggest issues in this is that doctors as a profession, and this is a generalization, uh, value autonomy uh, as practitioners almost above everything else. Uh, so if you involve um, algorithmic decision-making, there's a, there's a real big um, push against that of, you know, these things are sort of making decisions and where's my professional judgment and, you know, I have more information. Uh, and what we see is that, you know, people place far more weight on their experience and anecdotal evidence than they do on uh, studies and data, despite the fact that they are rigorous, high quality, you know, have large numbers of subjects people will prioritize their experience over that so frequently. It's just, yeah, it's a real big problem. Uh, but, you know, where do we go with that? Uh, when, at what point do we 
make some of those decisions and say, hey, look, you know, the, the evidence here is highly suggestive that the things that you were doing are wrong, so you are just not allowed to do them anymore, and we're going to defer in these instances to a computer. Uh, how do people feel about that? I don't know. Um, perhaps I should stop talking about that, and we should hear from uh, Ben and the things that are exciting you uh, in tech. All right, so this might have actually been better to follow uh, what Len was saying earlier about um, React, I guess, because uh, right now I'm actually working on a an iOS app in React Native at the moment, um, and I'm actually coming at React from the other direction. I'm kind of learning React through React Native instead of learning React Native uh, through React, I guess. Um, and sort of, I guess, the, the thing that excites me the most is um, I see a lot more progress towards sort of functional programming. And I think in the broader scheme of things, um, you know, what one might call declarative programming as well, um, which is something I have a lot of uh, respect for and experience doing in, in sort of different paradigms. So I think there's a lot of promising promise there. Promise there uh, so. so why do you think that is? Um, well, one of the more interesting applications of sort of declarative programming paradigms, and a lot of times when we say that uh, these days, People immediately think of like pure functional programming languages like Haskell, but um, my earliest experience with um, uh, declarative programming was with uh, LabVIEW. Uh, some of you might have heard of it. It's like it's a proprietary system, but it's it's also often used for industrial automation. It's a it's a graphical data flow language, but you can basically uh, see uh, your program f uh, literally flat, and you can see where all the data is moving within it. Um, and it was just really interesting conceptually sort of coming from a procedural world where you tell the computer what to do in a list of steps and going to this where you can kind of, it's just, it's a very different way of thinking. And I think um, it works very well for certain kinds of like uh, robotics specifically, because I was, I was doing LabVIEW for uh, a student robotics team. And um, I think it's going to have a lot of tie-ins with sort of internet of things and automation and that kind of thing moving forward. Um, I, I, I am also um, very interested in uh, functional programming and um, Len mentioned earlier uh, that he uh, has an interest in Elixir and uh, that's an area that I'm extremely interested in and uh, perhaps uh, I'd like to talk about that but Ben did you want to talk about anything else um, before that? No, I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to talk with uh, about Elixir with you too, because it's something I'm pretty interested in as well. So, so uh, for people that haven't uh, come across Elixir, it's um, a language that is built on top of the Erlang Virtual Machine. And for those who haven't heard of the Erlang Virtual Machine, uh, it is uh, a technology that's been around for around thirty years now uh, and has been running. Um, telephony switches. Uh, so it came out of Ericsson and has been running about 50% of all of the telephony traffic uh, in the world for a very long time. Uh, it's a very, very scalable um, technology to work with. Uh, so it handles multiple nodes, multiple processors, multiple machines uh, out of the box. Uh, and they've been solving problems that we're fighting with as web developers um, for 20 or 30 years uh, in ways that are frequently so much better than the, than the things that, um, that we've been doing to get to where we are. 
The other thing that I find particularly exciting about it is the uh, really, really small uh, amount of processing uh, and memory that is required to um, to do things with this uh, language. And um, I, I did a bit of a blog post uh, recently because I'm also interested in you know Raspberry Pi, Internet of Things, and um, so I installed elixir and a web framework called phoenix on a on a raspberry pi and decided to stress test it and um this 30 dollars computer was able to handle like 1200 requests a second um with almost no memory requirements at all uh and then when i threw in uh you know uh, database requests and queries and stuff like that it was still able to handle 200 requests a second and and that for um, a lot of, uh, you know, basic applications that, uh, you know, many of us build, uh, you know, we'd like to be uh, having problems at Facebook scale. But, uh, you know, for many, that's just a pipe dream. Uh, we, we don't need to be able to serve a million requests a second. Receiving 200 requests a second would actually be kind of uh, nice. Uh, that, would, that would be um, evidence of success. But... Um, the things that enable this to happen is that it is a functional uh, language. So uh, data is immutable by default. So you, uh, when you call a function, if you call it with the same data, you should get back the same result always. Uh, this means that things can be passed off to uh, many other calls and, and be run concurrently uh, in ways that just are not possible in... Um, so many other languages and uh, I came to this from doing a lot to work with Ruby on Rails and you know that that did a lot to um, push the web forward and, and make rapid web development a thing uh, but how we interact with the web now uh, is very different to the to the Rails view um, we don't spend as much time uh, having a you know downloading a web page spending some time filling in a form send back the form, render another page, you know, uh, communication is much more frequent and small, you know, lots of small uh, JSON payloads going backwards and forwards and, and Rails uh, handles that poorly. Um, where Elixir, it just, wow, it just does so much um, uh, with so little. Um, yes, forward slash end rent. Yeah, the thing that I find striking is, you know, for a language that isn't really much more verbose than Ruby and doesn't really have uh, like a lot uh, more uh, just bloat, uh, that it's still like so like an order of magnitude faster than Ruby. Yeah, um, I don't know uh, how much uh, of anything you've been doing with it, but it, it is... Uh, something that is now my uh, technology of choice if I want to build a backend. Uh, I, I, the types of things that I build these days tend to be single page application style things where that makes sense. Uh, and I, I can't see any reason to use uh, Rails as a backend for that anymore. Do you have anything, uh, any thoughts about that, Ben? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people, I guess I, I started off with... Uh... Ruby as well, and people talk about it coming uh, to it from Ruby, and it's it. I think uh, the the similarities with Ruby are kind of overblown, especially when you get into the concurrency stuff, because 
I mean, as as most Ruby programmers know, Ruby is kind of inherently hamstrung with regards to um, concurrency. So, and you know, I, I'm not bagging. You know, I'm not criticizing Ruby per se. That is what it is, and it did what it did. Um, I think what I'm feeling more and more though is that it no longer fits the model of the things um, that I do. Um, the other thing that continues to excite me uh, is Ember.js. Uh, and the reasons for that are predominantly around uh, build tooling and structure. Um, so, you know, where uh, Lens talked a little bit earlier about needing to uh, build your own build system and uh, integrate things together yourself, um, I find that um, I can... Uh, develop things in Ember in a much shorter amount of time than I can with technologies that I've used historically, uh, like Angular and Knockout. Uh, but yeah, it just feels like a really well thought out, well planned thing. Uh, and they've openly stolen most of the uh, really good things that I'd like from React, like the, the virtual DOM. Um, and, you know, I find it performant, um, yeah, and just really, really well structured. Um, I had a, um, an experience recently where we were doing some um, work for a client and we were taking an old um, jQuery spaghetti um, application and I was able to port that across to a... Um, highly tested um, Ember application in like a day and a half. Uh, and now we can build on that and build features on top of it. Um, and that was really, really exciting. I also really appreciate that it's so opinionated. The thing that I like about Rails is that I can jump into a new Rails application and be productive immediately as opposed to spending a day or two trying to figure out the lay of the land and what things go where. Right, yeah. Um, so the, the way that I sort of reason about that um, is, you know, I work for a consultancy, so we get hired to build things for customers. And whilst I find um, wiring things together myself intellectually stimulating, uh, very, very fun to do, I don't always feel like that's the right thing to do uh, in serving my clients and their business, um, using something that, as you say, it has those opinions uh, that somebody else can come in after me and maintain and be quite confident that they know where to look to find the basic bits of the application that they need to work on. I feel like it serves the clients better longer term than if I was to, you know, uh, handcraft my own boutique uh JavaScript framework and build tooling. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, the thing that I think is a double-edged sword with that in like Railsland is that I think a lot of reason a lot of people are looking elsewhere is, at least for me, Rails development has become a little bit boring. Like I feel like so much of my job is just configuring gems, uh, which is great because, you know, Rails is so mature at this point that so many problems have been solved, uh, but that kind of leaves a little less fun for us developers that like to solve problems. So 
I get a new feature and it's basically gem install, do some configuring and then debugging. And none of that is especially fun. I think uh, it, one of the things that I also like, uh, that, and this is um, in relation to both Elixir uh, and Ember, is that the, the core developers of, of these technologies have come from jQuery, have come from Rails, and it really feels to me like they have learned from a lot of the mistakes that were made uh, in the early days of those things and are, and are working really hard to avoid them. Um, and particularly with things like Phoenix, uh, which is a web framework built on top of Elixir, mentioned it earlier. They're doing some really, really interesting stuff uh, around how you uh, communicate with your persistence layer uh, and very much moving away from the uh, active record uh, object model, uh, uh, you know, where persistence is really, really tightly coupled to your uh, model object, uh, and that that's, feels like it's going to scale a lot better uh, as projects get bigger. Okay. Um, so, who's got some other things that they would like to talk about? Robots are always fun. <laughs> Tell me about robots. Well, like, DARPA Challenge has always been issuing every year a new challenge to people, and it's kind of been interesting to see the robots that have come out of that. We're getting, you know, we always think of robots like shaped like humans and they walk real stupid and whatever, but we're kind of getting to a point where robots are at least on like a heavy duty commercial scale. They're getting a lot more accurate. They can, you know, move around better. They can, um, you know, things like that. But, um, combined with new technologies on recognizing images and recognizing speech and things like that, we've gotten them to be a lot more interactive with people. And, you know, there's some people that think like, oh, we'll all just have little robots in our houses at some point in the future to help take care of old people and other things like that. But I like um, kind of also how they've gotten to the point where you can almost just build one on your own, too. Um, you know, kind of going back to the hardware thing we talked about in the beginning where, you know, parts are just kind of available now that I know I've mentored about two or three different robotics teams for kids now that they're just so prevalent that you can just go to a high school and they already have a team that's building these things for competitions and things like that. So um, besides just kind of being generally cool and um, good to see more of them. I think it's also really good that because of them, we're helping encourage kids uh, in science and technology kind of things now. Um, because, I mean, to be honest, we don't know what our future is going to look like in five years. I mean, you know, we could have driving cars everywhere, but we might not. Maybe they still won't be accurate enough. Um, you know, things like that. So I think it's cool that we're you know, kind of to a point where, you know, our future generations um, cannot just use the things, but have the knowledge of how they work and can work on, you know, the new waves of technology and how they'll affect us later. 
Yeah, that, that's um, definitely something that's fascinating to me, how, uh, you know, computing started out in the hardware and sort of over time got up to these really kind of high level abstractions. And now it feels like we uh, are going back down the stack again, going back down to the hardware level and are teaching, you know, at a school level, uh, these people who will... Uh, define what the future looks like for the rest of us, but it feels like those things are being taught again uh, in ways that have been missing for, you know, probably the last 10 to 15 years. Another thing that I find is interesting about this is that the programming has become much less intimidating. Uh, I'm looking at nodebots.io and, um, you know, Arduinos have their own language for their sketches, what they call it, but there is a JavaScript framework called Johnny5, uh, named for another famous robot. And that allows you to program your Arduino in JavaScript. And I think you know the great thing about this is that JavaScript is a hugely ubiquitous language. It, you know, it's available to you through view source in every browser. So the this becomes a way, you know, it was like learning when I was taking a grad school course in AI, even though I was not a comp sci grad student, they taught us Lisp. And I was like, okay, so what development environment do we use for Lisp? And they said, you already have it. You, you know how to use that Emacs, don't you, Emma? And I said, yes. And it's like, well, here, if you press these commands, you'll have a, you know, you'll have a fully, uh, fully functional uh, Lisp development environment. And it's the thing is, your web browser is your fully functional um, JavaScript development environment. Um, the difference between that, though, is that, you know, when you're programming software, it's not a thing you can hold. You know, it's just a thing that runs on a computer. Right. And with robots, it's cool that, you know, the thing you program is a real life object that you can interact with and watch and almost has a little bit cooler because, you know, it's you can't hold a piece of software, but you can hold a robot and you can see what it does when you interact with it. It's easy enough to program in JavaScript. And now you can take that knowledge about programming in JavaScript and use it to program that robot that you hold in your hand and does something. I'd still like somebody to uh, uh, solve the um, the uh, robot challenge of, of vacuum cleaners and also the bit where uh, it gets clogged up with dog hair. If somebody could invent a brush that doesn't get clogged up with dog hair, that isn't from Dyson, that would be great. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Our technology may not be advanced enough for dog hair. Yeah. True AI is going to be able to figure out how to clean my house. Or, or, or maybe just give us dogs that don't have hair. <laughs> They would be very cold dogs. Maybe it could knit for them. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could give us dogs that could knit for themselves. Now, that I would like to see. Um, um, can you not just attach a Roomba to a dog, and as they run around the house, they self-clean? <laughs> I've already seen that with a cat, but the cat was dressed as a shark and riding a Roomba. <laughs> so you're talking about like actually strapping the Roomba to the dog, so it's like brushing the dog as it's... Uh, I was thinking as the dog shed, the, the Roomba would be like right behind it. Oh. <laughs> but that could work too. I mean, it, it advances, you know, it, it brushes the dog as it just goes around throughout its day. 
Uh, I definitely think that um, the, the things that we've sort of talked about today, uh, some of them have been um, uh, deep sort of techie type stuff, but these uh, Internet of Things and the robots and AI and machine learning, uh, I reckon is something that it would be really interesting to have another um, episode where we um, think about the, the those, those things and, and how we feel about it. I think that would be a very good idea. It would also be kind of cool to revisit this, you know, in six months or a year and just say, hey, we talked about these before. Here's what's actually happened or here's what's changed. Awesome. Uh, well, I think that um, we probably, you know, get into a good place where we could um, wrap up this episode. Okay, that sounds good. That was episode four of the LGBTQ podcast. We'd like to thank Dysfunctional Al for the theme music, Paint the Sky, 